0: This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours. The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. In this episode of The Extraordinary Story, we're going to travel from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles and discover some very important details that we'll need to know about what the temple is, who Jesus says he is in regard to the temple. And in this third season, as we pass Mark's midpoint, we'll see the story of Jesus Christ moving toward its culmination, where God will deliver us finally from the maze of confusion that is our world. So let's start by reading some excerpts from John chapter 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand. So his brethren said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For even his brethren did not believe in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come. Go to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. So saying, he remained in Galilee. But after his brethren had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private, The Jews were seeking for him at the feast and saying, Where is he? About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and taught. The Jews marveled at it, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Yet we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Many of the people believed in him, and they said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd thus muttering about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. Now, this he said about the Spirit, which those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That's the end of the passage, and what I did basically was kind of chop up John chapter 7 and read some excerpts from here and there, but the way it begins is now the Feast of Tabernacles was at hand. So let's talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, which is also called the Feast of Booths. That's what's being discussed here. It was a huge harvest festival in Jerusalem by the temple, and it sounds amazing to me. For centuries, each autumn, the Jews celebrated this feast by building small structures to live in with thatched roofs such that they could see the stars. The idea was to thank God for the harvest and to remember and celebrate what God did for the Hebrew people by imitating a little the days in the desert when their forefathers slept in tents under the stars. In America, we have Halloween and Thanksgiving in the autumn. I remember as a kid, there was nothing more fun and freeing than trick-or-treating, not just because you got candy, but because it was amazing being a child outside in the dark with friends in a friendly atmosphere. Trick-or-treating was one way we did that. There were also these outdoor jazz festivals my parents would bring us to since my dad was a saxophonist and band leader. It's energizing and exciting to be up at night, outside, running around with friends, then dropping down on your back and looking up at the stars on a night that's cool, and you know the nights are coming when you can't go outside. And then later in fall, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite holidays to this day, when the family gets together and you force yourself to eat in harmony with people you are connected to, but don't spend enough time with. Every Thanksgiving is kind of like the first Thanksgiving, when the pilgrim immigrants spent time with the Native American Indians, people connected by their home, but different and often at odds with each other, putting aside differences for the day and thanking God for the harvest. Well, these all give us a sense of what it must have been like for the Jewish people at the Feast of Tabernacles, where they gathered together, put differences aside, and thanked God for the harvest, but did it in this outdoorsy way, with these booths and tabernacles that they built? If there were kids there, they must have loved it, running around at night. The city of Jerusalem was lit up by giant candelabras in the Court of the Women, a sanctuary area of the temple. And so the whole place was aglow. I don't know if Halloween and Thanksgiving quite do it justice, since it was a day celebrating national pride and religious victory, too. Maybe it's more like the 4th of July in America, another day we gather together outside at night. Or better, and some people will hate that I'm saying this, but Guy Fawkes Day in England, which is an autumn day when British people get together around a bonfire. Now, Guy Fawkes Day, November 5th, has a terrible history, but it sounds like a lot of fun to me. I teach about it in my class when we cover anti-Catholicism because it's the night the British celebrate uncovering and foiling a terrorist plot by Catholics, and a lot of anti-papal and anti-Catholic rhymes have grown up around it. It involves a giant bonfire on which an effigy of Guy Fawkes is often burned, and it also involves fireworks. Okay, so there, apart from the nasty things about that custom, I see why it's so loved, It's like a 4th of July and a religious festival all at once. These people are celebrating their country, they're celebrating their faith, and with the weather getting cooler, it's got the excitement of gathering around a bonfire, a giant campfire, if you will, Uh, just a lot like the city of Jerusalem must have been lit up by firelight and candlelight at night. Now add a couple of things that they would do at this Feast of the Tabernacles. And it gets even cooler. One was they would pour water from the pool of Siloam over the altars, drenching them and making the water pour out of the temple's exterior ducts, which we talked about earlier. We talked about how approaching Jerusalem, you'd see blood pouring out of these things. Well, that night it was water. So there was this extravagant waterworks going on, but also in the court of women, the sanctuary and the temple courts, where the giant candelabras were lit, there were dancers and processions with torches. So both these images give a lot of clarity to some of the things Jesus said about being the light of the world and a city on a hill and how lampstands aren't meant to be hidden and about being living water in today's gospel and anyone who's thirsty coming to him. He's repositioning himself as the temple, as we'll see. But first, let's just appreciate how important the temple was in Jewish lives. I think the best expressions of how Jewish people felt about the temple are in the Psalms. Psalm 84 says, "How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord God of hosts! My soul is longing and yearning, yearning for the courts of the Lord. They are happy who dwell in your house forever singing your praise." That sounds exactly like a description of the Feast of Tabernacles. And so does this other one, it sounds like a description of going up to the Feast of the Tabernacles. Psalm 122 I rejoiced when I heard them say, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And now our feet are standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city strongly compact. It is there that the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord. Anyway, this is the festival Jesus is going up to. And this describes the joy you'd expect Jesus to have when his brothers invite him to come up to the feast with them. First of all, about that word brothers, We described in an earlier episode how, yes, they're called the brothers of the Lord, and they are called that even in the early church, and no, they are not the sons of Mary. They are close relatives of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, but in the Gospels themselves, we hear them named as sons of another Mary. But the Gospel calls them brothers, and so will we. And there's this famously perplexing series of verses in this Gospel In verse 8, Jesus tells his brothers, Go to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to this feast. Then, in verse 9, we hear, So saying, Jesus stayed in Galilee. Then, in verse 10, comes the surprise. It says, After his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up, not publicly, but in private. At first, it sounds like Jesus told an untruth, like Jesus lied. He told his brothers he wasn't going, but then he went but there's a number of ways to understand what really happened. St. Augustine gives a good kind of prosaic observation about the passage. He points out that the festival was eight days long with various special days and planned events. He attended the festival, but not every feast, or the key days of the festival, but not the first days of the festival. We can think of it like Christmas. Will you be visiting this Christmas, your family might ask? Sure, you might answer. We'll be there on the 23rd, but we have to leave on... Christmas Eve, to go to my in-laws' house. Or someone might even say, yes, we're visiting this Christmas. We'll be there on the 26th or 27th. We haven't figured it out yet. Because, as we all know, I'll be there for Christmas doesn't mean I will come there on December 25th. In common parlance, it means I will be there around Christmas time. And go up to the festival didn't mean be there with us from day one of the festival throughout the eight days. It meant are you going to come up with us now? St. John Chrysostom has a great expression of a grander explanation of this verse. He says it's important to look at what he actually says. Chrysostom says, Jesus did not say, I will not go up, but only I do not go up. That is in your company. He's right. Look at it in context. His brothers haven't just said, go to the festival with, with us. They said, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no man works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John adds the further detail that his brothers didn't believe. So they aren't just offering Jesus a ride to Jerusalem. They are making it clear that they think it's time for Jesus to make a grand entrance into the city and put his money where his mouth is regarding his claims to be a special chosen one of God. It's very much like the devil saying, if you are the son of God, leap down from the temple. They're saying, if you are so special, prove it in Jerusalem in front of everyone at this major feast. And in response to that, Jesus doesn't say to his brothers, I will not be attending any day of the festival. He says, Go to the feast yourselves. I am not going up, for my time has not yet fully come. Essentially, I turn down your proposal to go up in the dramatic way you say because the timing is wrong. He can't do what they say because his mission as the Son of God will require a definitive entrance into Jerusalem before the Passover, but not at the Feast of the Tabernacles. At any rate, as is often the case in the Gospel of John, Jesus uses words with layers of meaning. He uses the phrase, it is not time for me to go up. To mean also his time to go up to the cross to die, his time to go up in resurrection from the tomb, his time to go up into heaven at his ascension. Jesus knows that going up to the temple and revealing his works will lead to his death. And it's not time yet. And that's what John chapter 7 is all about. It's the first tense moments that will lead to Jesus' death. He doesn't make a dramatic entrance, but he does go up privately and begin teaching in the temple where he starts saying these astounding things that cause people to speculate that he is the Christ. The whole chapter is filled with Jesus delivering zingers guaranteed to get him killed. He says, Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? He says, If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken... Are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? He tells wise but potentially triggering proverbs such as, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The Pharisees say, How is it that this man has this learning when he has never studied? And Jesus gives the reply, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. And he adds, He who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But he who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there is no falsehood. To make matters worse for the Pharisees, the crowds become swayed by the whole thing, saying, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So the Pharisees get fed up, and they try to go arrest Jesus, but Jesus evades them, saying, I shall be with you a little longer, and then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And then, on the culmination of the whole thing, Jesus cries out in the temple on the last and greatest day of the feast, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. And here we might pause and consider what the temple meant to people in Jesus' day a little bit further. I wanted to start with the Feast of the Tabernacles and the Joyful Temple Psalms because they capture the feeling people had toward the temple as a cozy stronghold, a place of safety and rest, and it's a great illustration of what the temple represented to them religiously. I personally think of it as a storm home. Now let me explain what I mean by a storm home. I remember when I was a kid in the early 80s, my parents got these News from Lake Wellbegon tapes by Garrison Keillor from the NPR radio show Prairie Home Companion. They were stories about a fictional Minnesota town that I loved to listen to, and Keillor back then had a great way of weaving the details of his stories together into these great little anecdotal essays. One that particularly caught my imagination was one from the Winter Tape called Storm Home. In it, he talked about how when he was a child, he had been given a storm home. Kids were given a home they could stay in if a bad blizzard hit while they were at school. The people there would welcome them in, and they would stay there until the storm passed, and their parents could get into town once again to pick them up. His storm home was the Kruger's house, and he talks about how much it meant to him, thinking of this place of safety he could go when things get tough. He said, we all need a storm home. And I've thought about that ever since. Of course, the temple is a storm home, and so is the church. I'll get to that, but let's think this through. Because we all need a storm home. It pops up all over literature. Robin Hood had Sherwood Forest. Romeo and Juliet had Friar Lawrence's cell. Hester Prynne had her forest home. Huck and Jim, briefly, had Jim's Island. Tom Bombadil's house and the Lord of the Rings and Rivendell, too, are storm homes. I'm a Bob Dylan fan, and one of my favorite Dylan songs of all time remains Shelter from the Storm because it's an example of this, this storm home. Dylan sings, "'Twas in another lifetime, one of toil and blood. When blackness was a virtue, the road was full of mud. I came in from the wilderness, a creature void of form. Come in," she said, "'I'll give you shelter from the storm.'" I talked at work about my strong feelings about home and storm home, and a coworker asked me, Were you a latchkey child? Yes, I confessed. Knew it, she said. And I think that's profound. Kids who had no one to come home to, which is the majority, isn't it, probably had a deep longing for a place of welcome and safety. We're all latchkey children in the universe, ultimately, metaphysical latchkey children, feeling like we are somehow never quite at home. I remember my mom, who was not a latchkey child when she grew up, would get this faraway look in her eye and say every once in a while, I want to go home. When I was little, I would say, But mom, you are home. And she wouldn't answer. In his book, 10 Universal Principles, Father Robert Spitzer talks about this phenomenon. He says, Have you ever felt, either as a child or an adult, a sense of alienation or discord, a deep sense of not belonging? You ask yourself, what could be the source? And you look around and see at this particular time you have good relationship with your friends and family. Your work relationships seem to be going fairly well. Community involvements have produced some interesting friends and contexts in which to work. Yet something is missing. You do not feel at home in a general sense. You do not feel at home with family, friends, and coworkers. Yet you feel like you are out of kilter with and do not belong to the totality. And yet, all the specific contexts you look to seem fine. You feel an emptiness, a lack of peace, yet there seems to be no reason as to why you feel this way. End quote. He goes on to explain, quote, Many philosophers and theologians connect this feeling with a human being's yearning to be at home with the totality, not merely at home with myself, my family, my friends, or even the world, but to be perfectly at home without any hint of alienation. End quote. He said this longing for home, even when we are at home, is a longing for God Himself. And this is exactly what St. Paul said quote, For we know that if our earthly dwelling, a tent, should be destroyed, we have a building from God, a dwelling not made with hands, eternal in heaven. For in this tent we groan, longing to be further clothed with our heavenly habitation. End quote. And that's what the temple is. It's a dwelling place of God with his people, a shelter from the storm we human beings have caused by our sin, opposition, anger, and hatred. And it was more than a cozy shelter. First of all, it was in Jerusalem, a glorious place filled with history, stretching back to Melchizedek, the king of Salem, and it was the place of the Ark of the Covenant before it was lost. But then the temple itself, at least in the original one built by Solomon, represented the whole of the cosmos. It reminds me of Achilles' shield in the Iliad. Achilles was half-mortal with one weak spot, his Achilles' heel, and his mother was worried about him after his existential wailing and grief over the death of his dear friend Patroclus. She has the god Hephaestus make a shield for him, and it's described in great detail in the poem, and it's basically inscribed with images showing the whole of existence— with its inner ring showing the stars, and everything surrounding it, the images of the human story of war, peace, civilization, dancing even, and agriculture. You can think of this as the highest representation of the meaning of the world, as ancient pagan civilizations saw it. The Greeks saw the world as a place of constant strife, but not war for the sake of violence, but war at the service of peace and harmony. It is meaningful that these images are on a shield, An implement of war yes but also a defensive implement of war a shield is meant to deflect the blows that the world tries to land on us well if achilles shield depicts a high expression of the pagan worldview the temple is the highest monotheistic expression of the meaning of the world back in genesis the old testament describes the creation of the world and the whole thing is made to sound like a temple with pillars and the earth and the dome of heavens and waters above and below the firmament. The Jewish people knew that God created the world to dwell with mankind, and therefore the earth was a temple. But then man spoiled it with sin, and the whole thing was corrupted. Now we are in a world like Achilles' world of constant strife and longing for peace. But the temple is a space that God uses to come back into right relation with us. So the whole thing was made to look like a new Garden of Eden. The description of Solomon's temple the original temple in second kings makes this clear There are depictions of palm trees lilies and pomegranates fruits of the vine crawling around the pillars and up the walls there are carvings of lion and oxen and not of them attacking each other but them in separate places living in peace then there are depictions of the supernatural world above the creatures of heaven the cherubim angels living in harmony with all things guarding the temple like they did the garden of eden In other words, the temple was a great storm home. But more than that, it was a storm home, a place of refuge from the terrors of the world outside, but one that pointed to a final stage in creation when the whole of creation would be made into a storm home. And when do you think it was dedicated? Well, Solomon dedicated his great temple at the Feast of Tabernacles when the Israelites were camping out in Jerusalem, imitating their fathers who followed God's protective pillar of cloud in the desert. When he dedicated the temple, Solomon prayed a mighty prayer of dedication in which the great king looked forward to a time when God would dwell with men and women first, and then a time when we would enter a new land with him. And after he said the prayer, God descended on the temple in a cloud, and his presence dwelled there, though the presence of God later left the temple. And so fast forward to this Feast of Tabernacles, and it feels even more like a thanksgiving, a celebration of home, the true home we have with God, there in huts by the temple walls from which you can see the stars. And this is where Jesus cries out, anyone who is thirsty, come to me and drink. This is like the climactic moment in a series of Jesus' appearances in the temple, starting with his grand return to the temple as an infant when he was presented there then with him being there as an older child in his father's house when his earthly family lost him. He began his public ministry in the Gospel of John by clearing out his father's house as his ministry began. But after that, there were two moments when Jesus made clear that the days of the temple were numbered and that he himself would replace them. He told the Samaritan woman at the well that people would worship one day neither in the temple nor on the Samaritans' Mount Gerizim, but in spirit and truth. Then later he did some curious things that I have saved until now to share. There's a story we skipped earlier in the narrative about a time when Jesus and his apostles were walking through a field and the disciples started picking pieces of grain to eat. The Pharisees saw it and complained, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus argues back by referencing a time when David and his band of brothers came hungry to the temple and ate the bread of the presence, the special bread that's kept before the presence of God in the temple. First, Jesus implies that he is greater than David, and then he adds something even more astounding, saying of himself, something greater than the temple is here. So Jesus in Matthew 12 says that he and his church is greater than the temple. He doubles down on this claim in a passage from Matthew 17 that chronologically happens around the time of this visit to the temple that we're discussing today. It happens as Jesus is in Galilee, and he's asked to pay the temple tax. This is an ancient tax first assessed by Moses to support the tent of meeting that now supports the massive temple facility. Jesus asks Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute?" From their sons or others? He wants to know if it's appropriate for the Lord of the Sabbath and the one greater than the temple to pay taxes for the temple. When Peter says, from others, Jesus says, then the sons are free. Then he tells the tax collector to go and catch a fish and the tax needed for both Peter and himself would be in the fish's mouth. That's an astonishing way to pay a tax, but it helps solve the dilemma. Jesus gets the tax paid without personally paying it. At the same time, he's proclaiming that both himself and Peter, because he pays Peter's tax too, that the two of them are greater than the temple, they don't owe to the temple because of this new kingdom which will be founded on Peter. These are all tacit ways for Jesus to say that he is no mere man, but that he is equal to God. Anyway, a few verses before that declaration that he is greater than the temple Jesus said some key things that link up very nicely with what he says in our reading today. He said in Matthew 11, At that time Jesus said in reply, I give praise to you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, for although you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned, you have revealed them to the childlike. Yes, Father, such has been your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son wishes to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. That sounds a lot like what he says now, anyone who is thirsty, let him come to me and drink and says, rivers of water will flow out from him. These are some of the most consoling words in Scripture. Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. And come to me, all you who are thirsty. Anyone who has had a relationship with Jesus Christ knows exactly what this means. It means that Jesus, not the temple, is now our storm home. The greatest feeling in the world is not any kind of bodily pleasure, but... The supernatural rest of an encounter with Jesus Christ, especially in the sacraments of confession and the Eucharist. But we also know that Christ's peace is not an easily won sentimentality. Because he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. Jesus has not come simply bringing peace. He brings a yoke and a burden. He also expects a humble heart, and for us, humility only comes through humiliation. In other words, Jesus gives us the recipe for peace and rest, but the ingredients are sometimes bitter and they require surrender to the unknown and acceptance of the unpleasant. We talked in the last episode about the humility needed for true faith. St. Anselm described this in the 11th century when he called good theology, faith-seeking understanding. The opposite, bad theology, I guess, would be mistrust demanding proof. And in the passage about Jesus preaching in the temple, you have the Pharisees being all about mistrust demanding proof. And you have the people who are starting to accept Jesus being all about faith, seeking understanding. The extent to which we are willing to be little, to be humble of heart, is the extent to which we will be close to Jesus. When I was an editor at the National Catholic Register, author H.W. Crocker III wrote something in a commentary piece that I've never forgotten. He said, quote, We few, we happy few, we band of brothers who accept the Church's teaching on contraception do not ultimately do so because of the unchanging tradition of the Church or the argument from natural law or any other argument, however true. Ultimately, we accept the Church's teaching because we have decided to give without counting the cost, end quote. That is so true for me of the teaching about contraception and so much more. I don't believe because I've figured it out. I believe because I've come to understand that Jesus Christ is worth following, and I figure the rest of it will fall into place eventually. Christianity is hard. Living a demanding life in a hostile society is hard. But the one thing that makes it easy is love. If someone told you you had to give everything you own and spend all your days serving another person 24 7, 365 days a year, you would say "It's impossible, it's a non-starter, it sounds like slavery." But that's exactly what you promise to do when you get married. And the old exhortation from Catholic marriage puts it well: Sacrifice is usually difficult and irksome. Only love can make it easy, and perfect love can make it a joy. That's what we experience in Christ. That's why his burden is light. In The temple at the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus cries out to those who would listen, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. John adds, Now this he said about the spirit which those who believed in him were yet to receive— for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. End quote. It was John who reported Jesus' words to the woman at the well earlier. She was a Samaritan who believed Mount Gerizim, not the temple, was the place to worship God. Jesus tells her, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Well, where were we going to worship then? We were going to worship with Christ wherever Christ is which, as it turns out, is everywhere. Christ himself was one greater than the temple, the ultimate Emmanuel, God with us. And by giving us a share in his life, he elevates us as well. As St. Origen of Alexandria put it, both the body of Jesus and the temple seem to me to be a type of the church, which with lively stones is built up in a spiritual house into a holy priesthood. St. Jerome said that now, we can say to Jesus what we once said about the temple. Quote, I long, O Lord, for your eternal dwelling places. My soul yearns and pines for the courts of the Lord. I long for some place to dwell, a nest for my soul and my body. The birds that fly about to and fro with no restraining, nevertheless, after their flight, have a place and a nest in which to rest. How much more ought my body and my soul procure for itself a resting place? End quote. Jesus is our new storm home, and he's available to us everywhere. He himself says we can pray to him in our own room where the Father listens. St. Paul says the sacraments make us each into a temple of the Holy Spirit, and the church teaches that even our homes become like temples. Precisely because home life is hard, God sends enormous graces to families. Not only does the church say that the home is, quote, a domestic church, end quote, but that we are domestic priests, quote, the home is where the father of the family, the mother, children, and all members of the family exercise the priesthood of the baptized in a privileged way, end quote. Home is where we teach each other, quote, endurance and the love of work, fraternal love, and forgiveness, says the catechism, but also, quote, above all divine worship in prayer and an offering of one's life. In Christ, families will find that, according to the catechism, quote, In the joys of their love and family life, God gives them here on earth a foretaste of the wedding feast of the Lamb." But like I said, we don't always feel like our own homes, our storm homes. And I want to return back to the beginning where I talked about the Feast of Tabernacles, which sounded so beautiful. And I want to say that we have a Feast of Tabernacles every day in every Catholic church. The beauty of that feast was huddling close to the temple in the place where God himself dwells, remembering how God accompanied his people in the desert. Well, in every Catholic church, there is a tabernacle where he dwells still, and he's accompanying us there throughout our lives. Go to the tabernacle and experience what the Jewish people experienced, a God who graces us with his presence and invites us to come close to him and experience the delight of his presence the joy of his comfort and the peace and calm that only he can deliver. He cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scriptures has said, out of his heart shall flow rivers of living water. And so we do. We visit him there where the baptismal font is, reminding ourselves that that's where he filled us with his refreshment, and that we can share that refreshment with the world. He says... Come to me, all you who labor and are burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and humble of heart, and you will find rest for yourselves, for my yoke is easy and my burden light. And there at his tabernacle we can rest and unburden ourselves with him in the glow of the sanctuary lamp, like the Jews at the Feast of the Tabernacles. Just as the Feast of the Tabernacles helped the Jewish people reconnect with their sacred story, At our tabernacles, we can reconnect our own life stories to Jesus Christ's extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Leave a review and share with a friend. Help us tell others about the extraordinary story.